The ten older sons were jealous of Joseph because Joseph was their father's favorite son. One day, Joseph did something they didn't like. So they sold him as a slave to a passing caravan. They lied to their father, saying they found his bloody coat as evidence that he had been killed and eaten by a wild animal. Jacob tore his clothes and went into mourning. No one could console him, and, the, and he mourned his son for many days. Joseph was taken into Egypt and sold into slavery. He was 17 years old. He trusted in God to take care of him and worked hard in the work assigned to him. Years later, Joseph was falsely accused of a crime and went to prison. Joseph still trusted in God. Joseph found favor in the eyes of the prison keeper who saw that Joseph was a responsible young man. He put Joseph in a position of authority among the fellow prisoners. Joseph made sure that everything operated like he was supposed to, and the other prisoners trusted him to be a fair overseer. Some years later, a couple of prisoners had disturbing dreams. One of the prisoners had been the king's baker. The other had been the king's wine taster. They saw Joseph was a sympathetic man and told him about the dreams. Joseph said, only God can interpret dreams, but maybe he will reveal them to us. Joseph listened to the dreams. Inspired by God, he said, both of you are leaving this place and never coming back. Both of the prisoners were well pleased. Then Joseph said, well, it's good news for one and bad news for the other. To the king's baker, he said, you're cooked. You'll never again serve a bad cake. You will lose your head, the baker cried. To the wine taster, he said, you will go back to your old job, <clears throat> tasting wine before the king does to make sure it's not poisoned. The king needs you because no one else applied for the job. The wine taster was very happy. Joseph went on to say, Please put in a good word to the king for me. I am an innocent man and should not be in jail. A few days later, the baker lost his head and the wine taster went back to work. He enjoyed the taste of wine and really got into his work. For years, he forgot about putting in a good word for Joseph. Then one night, the king had a bad dream. He told the dream to his wise men, and they didn't have a clue what the dream could mean. The king's wine taster was listening in on the conversation. He was always close by in case the king needed some more wine. The wine taster thought about the king's mysterious dream. Then he remembered Joseph, who had interpreted his dream. Joseph was still in jail. Now is the time to put in a good word for Joseph. <clears throat> the wine taster told the king about Joseph and his ability to interpret dreams. The king sent for the jailer and told him to bring Joseph to the king's court. 
Joseph bathed and shaved and put on clean clothes and went to see the king. The king told Joseph his dream. He had dreamed that seven fat cows got eaten by seven skinny cows. Nothing was left but skinny cows. He dreamed that seven large ears of corn were eaten by seven scrawny ears of corn. Nothing was left but scrawny ears of corn. God revealed the meaning to Joseph, and Joseph told the king, The whole land would have seven years of prosperity with large abundant crops. That would be followed by seven years of famine. Joseph went on to give the king advice about how to deal with the revelation. Joseph said the king should put someone in charge of gathering the abundance of extra crops. A few granaries wouldn't do. Some of those already existed in the land, all of them put together would not be enough. The king liked Joseph's plan and was impressed by his wisdom. He made Joseph his executive officer and told him to make it happen. By Joseph's order, every farmer in that agrarian nation was to pay 20% of all crops to the government to be stored away. That would be a lot of crops in a normal year, but God had promised seven years of bumper crops. Joseph had to use the government resources to build some new storage facilities. They needed to start building on a massive scale and keep building for the next few years, <clears throat> and hopefully build at a rate that would keep up with the expected surplus for seven years. You may have seen some of the huge grain storage buildings in parts of this country where grain is stored until it is ready to sell. That is better than leaving the harvest open to the elements in huge piles. In Egypt at that time, God had revealed to Joseph that bumper crops needed to be stored safely for seven years, not to be sold until after that time. Large storage buildings were needed. Dr. Ben Carson, world-famous neurosurgeon, and cabinet member in the Trump presidency has an interesting theory about the grain storage at that time uh, in the time of Joseph <clears throat> in the land of Egypt. He said the grain storage buildings still exist today, thousands of years later. They are the pyramids of Egypt. Modern-day archaeologists believe those pyramids to be the monuments and tombs of ancient kings. It might be that Dr. Carson is correct, and the archaeologists are also correct to some degree. <coughs> it cannot be denied that the pyramids are monumental in appearance. They were used as grain storage buildings for seven years followed by seven years of famine when all that grain was consumed. That was a temporary purpose for those buildings that were built well enough to last for thousands of years. A king who wanted to be remembered by his people after he died could not build a more impressive monument than a pyramid. 
All he had to do was have his tomb built inside that pyramid and people would remember him. Every day they looked at the pyramid. Kings who ruled after that king would do exactly the same thing with the other pyramids that were just waiting for each king to die and dwell there. During that seven years of plenty, Joseph taxed everyone to pay 20% of the crops. That was something new. They might have complained, but they had such an abundance they didn't really miss that 20%. It's not like they could have sold it for a profit because everyone had more than they needed. Giving 20% to the government took it off the market, and so the produce they did sell didn't take a big price dip. Then came the famine. The people didn't have crops to store up for themselves because the government owned the crops thanks to that 20% tax. But many, maybe most, probably wouldn't have saved it up anyway. The people needed to eat, so they went to the king. The king said, go ask Joseph. He's in charge. Joseph sold them the grain they needed, and they were good for about a year. Then they came back to Joseph and told him they were out of food and out of money because they had spent it on food the year before. The government already had their money. Joseph told them they could give all their livestock to the government in exchange for grain for food. They did that. A year later, they came back. They had no food, no money, and no livestock to exchange for food. They told Joseph they needed to eat and they would give their land and sell themselves into government service for food. Joseph agreed. Now the government also owned their land and their very lives, what they could eat. A year later, they no longer owned property and had no way to earn income because the famine was still going. They moved into the cities to live off the government. As the famine neared its end, Joseph knew it would only last seven years. Joseph sent the people back out to work the land that, that used to be their own land, but now belonged to the king. Now they were sharecroppers. They were to get 20% of everything he produced to the king on a permanent basis. What had started out as a 20% tax during the years of plenty was now a permanent tax. The king got rich. He now owned all the property in the land and the service of all the people in the land. Here's before Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery at the age of 17. Now by the time he was 44 in that nation where he had been a slave, Joseph sold everyone into slavery, the whole nation. The king got rich. Joseph's father, Jacob, and Joseph's brothers were not at that time among the slaves at that, of that nation. But they were heading that direction. The famine had struck the king's nation and also hit the land where Jacob's family was living. They heard news there was food for sale in Egypt the land where Joseph was in charge of the economy. They knew of the food, but they didn't 
know about Joseph being the one who had it for sale. For all they knew, Joseph had died years before. <clears throat> that was the lie Joseph's brothers told their father when Joseph was just a teenager. Jacob believed it. Joseph's brothers might have believed Joseph was dead after all those years in slavery. Certainly, they believed that Joseph's fate was no longer their concern. When the sons of Jacob showed up in Egypt and presented themselves before the executive officer of Egypt, they were impressed with a regal government officer who held their fate in his hands, but they didn't recognize him. He had been a bruised teenager with torn clothes the last time they saw him. They had bruised him and torn his clothes. But Joseph recognized his brothers. Were they the same evil men who sold him into slavery? Or had they matured and become good men? Joseph would find out while he was thinking about what punishment they earned for their past sins. Joseph did test them over the next couple of years before he revealed to them that he was their brother that they had sold into slavery. The details of that testing and the hardship they endured in the testing, along with their response to the testing, are the makings of another story. Joseph was not a vindictive man. He was a great man with more important things to do than to exact vengeance on his brothers. And he didn't want to put his aged father through the drama of watching him punish his brothers for a crime his father wasn't even aware of. To learn of their past treachery that caused their father years of grief over the loss of his favorite son, that would be too much for his old heart. Besides, Joseph could see that they weren't the same evil men they had been in their youth. They were family men taking care of their father and their own families. <clears throat> Joseph had to take care of his father and his brothers and all of the extended family, which at that time numbered more than 70 people. They thought they were buying grain, but didn't know that Joseph had arranged for their money to be secretly returned to them. With the famine continuing, Joseph finally revealed himself to them and invited them to move everyone, including their father, to live in the land he governed. There would be enough government handouts to feed everyone. They packed up and moved the whole extended family. Because they were related to Joseph, who was the king's executive officer, the king gave them the land of Goshen on the edge of the property the king owned. He now owned it all. The king also put them in charge of his own livestock. The king owned all the livestock and all the land. The king allowed them also to keep their own livestock and all the personal property they brought with them. He had invited them to leave all that property behind when they came to Egypt, but they brought it anyway. Joseph's family was now wealthier than anyone else in the land, except the king. 
This was so because everyone else had given up everything they owned in exchange for food to eat at Joseph's direction. When the famine ended, Jacob and his family were set for life with land and livestock and the government job of taking care of the king's livestock. Everyone else in the land was a sharecropper. Jacob's family was set for life. At least they were set for as long as the life of Joseph. In Genesis 15:12, God told Abram that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. In Exodus 12, 40 through 41, it is written that the Israelites lived in Egypt for 430 years. They were not in slavery for their first 30 years in Egypt. Joseph was the king's executive officer during that time. During that time, the family of Israel was wealthy and well off. Joseph had been promised, had been promoted to that position when he was 30 years old. After seven years of plenty and two years of famine, Joseph told his brothers to bring their father and all of the family to live in Egypt. So Joseph was about 40 years old when they arrived. 30 years later, the status of the Israelites changed. Maybe the Egyptians enforced mandatory retirement at the age of 70, which was Joseph's age at that time. More likely, a new king came into power, a king that had no love for the Israelites. They had been in Egypt for 30 years. The native Egyptians were probably jealous of the Jews who had wealth, while the common Egyptians did not. The new king put the Jews under subjection, like all the rest of the Egyptians. In a socialist country where the government owned everything, it was useful to make sure no one had more than anyone, everyone else. And now those Jews would be available to do work the Egyptians didn't want to do. <clears throat> Even though the Israelites, as Jacob's descendants were now called, had enjoyed the benevolent rule of the king who was Joseph's boss, it was revealed when the king died that they were now slaves. They were dependent on the government that gave them a place to live and a government job and other benefits. In a short time, the government's expectations of their service, the increasing burden of taxes, the new regulations in addition to old regulations, all continued to erode the freedom they used to have and the wealth they used to enjoy. It is an old story that follows a similar pattern again and again in nations even today. When the people of a nation decide their government should feed them and give them everything else they want, the government will take on that responsibility, but the people of that nation will pay. The Israelites paid with 400 years of slavery. In one of those years, more than 300 years after the Israelites entered Egypt, the king who ruled at that time expressed fear 
that the Israelites would grow more, grow their population to the point that they would become powerful enough to rebel against the king and take over the country. He decided to enforce some population control. They didn't have abortion clinics in those days. The Israelite women didn't go to a hospital to give birth. They had midwives who helped the mothers in the birthing process in the privacy of their homes. Knowing this much about the Israelite customs, the king called a meeting of the midwives. He gave strict orders to them. When a baby was born, if it was a girl, they were to let her live. If the baby was a boy, the midwife was to kill the baby. The king had decided that it was a good thing to have a collection of mostly female slaves. His army could whip a rebel army of women, he thought. It was boys growing up to be men that he was afraid of. The midwives did not obey the king's command to kill boy babies. Those ladies weren't acting like slaves. They told the king the mothers were giving birth before the midwives could get there to help them, so they didn't have opportunity to kill boy babies. The king ordered the soldiers to go out and kill those babies. Only God knows how many babies died in that government purge. People did what they could to save their babies. We do know the story of one particular baby. If the king had not ordered his death, he might have grown up as a lowly slave in a lowly slave family. But his mother put him in a basket and set him afloat in the Nile River. She couldn't predict the his fate in that little boat, but she was desperate to protect him from the king's soldiers in their search and destroy mission. The baby's older sister thought he was going on a cruise and wouldn't come back, and she couldn't just let him go. She stayed within sight of him as his boat was floating among the reeds. Then along came the king's daughter and her entourage of servant girls, she had come down to the river for a swim. The princess saw the basket and, and sent one of her servant girls to get the basket. And they discovered the baby boy. He was crying. And she took pity on him. She said, this is one of those Hebrew babies the king wants to kill. She wanted to take possession and protect him. The baby boy's sister, Miriam, was close by watching the whole encounter, and she spoke up. Do you want me to find somebody to nurse him for you? It was a good offer. Someone had to feed this baby. The princess made a deal with her. She was to have the baby fed and taken care of until he was old enough to go and live with the princess as her little boy. In the meantime, she would pay for his care, and the princess named him Moses because he was taken from the river. And so it was done. The baby's sister took him back home, and their mother took care of him, getting paid by the princess and under the protection of the princess from the soldiers 
searching for her, working for her father. The boy was sent to live with the princess in a few years. The boy grew up in the king's household. The king's order to kill babies had put him there. The king had feared that the Israelites would one day rebel against the kingdom. Now he was going to give a royal education to an Israelite who would one day lead the Israelites in a mass exodus, robbing the king of his slave labor and in God's power causing mass destruction to the kingdom. Moses grew up. He was 40 years old. He knew he was adopted, and he knew the an his ancestry was among those Hebrews who did all the menial work that Egyptians didn't want to do. The Hebrews didn't do it because they wanted to. They were slaves. They did it because the government told them to. The government was their master. Moses sympathized with them. and felt like he ought to do something about it, but he didn't really have a plan. He felt like he didn't belong among the privileged people he lived with, but he certainly didn't want to be a slave. The Hebrews were like sheep waiting for a shepherd, if only he could be that shepherd. In Exodus 2, 11 through 15, it tells us that Moses killed an Egyptian and had to leave Egypt. One day, Moses saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave for not working hard enough. Moses got mad, and he killed the Egyptian. We don't know the details of what happened next and the next day, but it might have gone something like this. The Hebrew work crew just stopped what they were doing and stared at the dead man, then stared at Moses, and Moses looked at the dead man and looked at his fellow Hebrews. He says, you are free, said Moses, in a voice shaking with excitement. And they said, what do you mean we are free? One dead Egyptian doesn't mean we are free. When the changing, changing of the guard comes, they will see this dead man, then we are dead. You better get rid of that body. Moses was stunned. They weren't cheering. They weren't taking up arms. They weren't jumping up to follow his leadership. Moses dragged the body off to the bushes, and he borrowed a shovel from the road crew, dug a hole, buried the dead man. Then he went home. The next day, still at a loss about what to do next, Moses again walked by the road crew. They had a new boss, but he was in the distance, sitting under a shade tree, eating his lunch. He wasn't supervising very well. Two of the men in his road crew had gotten into an argument about something, and now they were fighting, and Moses went over and told them to stop fighting. Who made you the judge of us, said one of them. Are you going to kill us? like you did the Egyptian. The road crew supervisor looked up, still chewing his sandwich. Moses looked back, wondering if the man had heard clearly what was said and if he understood what had happened. And Moses 
turned quickly and headed back home. Halfway there, he started running. He got home, packed up, and left town. Word got back to Pharaoh, and he sent his police force to find Moses, but he had already gone.